The next time you hear someone insisting that it was an actual, literal resurrection, make sure you add that bodily must mean that he didn't look like he looked before. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So, it's been a crazy summer, needless to say. Apologies that I, I have to keep subbing in these... Uh, these repeats, but kind of this week it, it made sense. And you know, you hardcore listeners are going to listen to everything. Um, but, but it was it was a holiday weekend, and that really wasn't the main reason why I didn't get a podcast in last week. Part of it was because I was lazy, and part of the reason I was lazy was because I was busy doing other things, um, like writing Federalist articles. I'm I'm actually this I'm I'm doing this this uh, op ed journalist thing it's actually uh you know finding it uh that that it suits me a bit and so um at any rate um actually got an article coming out tomorrow which means nothing to you because you're listening to this on a podcast and tomorrow if you're listening to this live on pirate christian is going to be next thursday sometime so so uh if you're listening to this on pirate christian you hear me talk about a federalist article that i wrote uh concerning the movie uh baby driver go check out the federalist um look me up and uh, and i'll have an article published there so any <laughs> so anyway i've been i've been enjoying that quite a bit that's been a, a real privilege to uh to have been fortunate enough to, to be published there a few times. And so I've been enjoying that and, and all that goes along with it. Although it just, it just makes you busy and tired and all that other sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to just, uh, juggle these couple balls here. Uh, but, but this is, this is important to me. I mean, this is what most interests me is, is talking about, uh, talking about theology from a layman's perspective. And so, so we're, we're going to keep this thing going. Uh, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to juggle all these balls and, you know, lay this ugly bag of snakes out straight for us. So, anyway, a uh, couple of things. There was a antinomian dust-up um, in the LCMS, and a couple of you were really wanting me to talk about that. I'm going to hold off on that for a while. I just, I just am. Uh, for a number of reasons. One is I'm, I'm exhausted by it to be honest, and I don't want to get burnt out on it because I think it's a really, really important topic. And I want to think through some things as well, um, how to approach it. Uh, you know, Steadfast Lutherans took took a bold stand on it, which I actually I'm can come out right now and say I I completely support what they did, although there are some who, who don't um, for a, a number of reasons, and, you know, whether it was ill-timed or whether whatever or however they did it. Um, you know, somebody's got to pull the trigger on the thing at some point, you know, and somebody really in, in maybe a lot more official capacity than, than, than myself. Um, you know, I can lend, lend support to their project, but, but at any rate, so we're going to talk about that another time because honestly, you know, I want, I want to get back to Rob Bell in a lot of ways. I find Rob Bell a lot more interesting than than my antinomian friends, just because uh, Rob Bell is actually doing deconst- you know postmodern deconstruction on purpose, and he knows what he's doing. So it's a lot more interesting to deal with with how he deconstructs. Um, whereas my antinomian friends, they are deconstructing to be sure. And in fact, I'm working on a, a little essay that I might put out at some point called "Deconstructing Law and Gospel." I may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but. Uh, but I think that's what's going on there. And, uh, the, the problem is they don't, I, I think there may be some of them that are intentionally doing that. 
Uh, but I doubt it. I think most of them are just, uh, that's the waters they swim in. They're millennials. And they don't have any idea that they are actually engaging in postmodern deconstructionism. And that's kind of where it leads there, you know. <laughs> you just kind of, the cultural, the, the, the culture, the cultural zeitgeist kind of gets a hold of you and you don't realize it. And it leads you to places sometimes you don't want to go. And so on and so forth. So I'm going to try to lay that out at some point, uh, hopefully. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I appreciate about Jacques Derrida is that he rev- he basically revealed something that's been going on since the the serpent in, in the garden, where he said, did God really say? Um... And Jacques Derrida just has given voice to that, to say, hey, this is what we're doing. And in that sense, he was very, very helpful because he laid out for us essentially, you know, how this stuff works. And he gave us an idea of where people are coming from. And that it, I find that enormously helpful when I can, when I have something that, that serves as, uh, explanatory value, uh, to, you know, to try to un- get my mind around what somebody else is doing and go, ah, okay, at least I know what they're doing. Now, how can I address it? If you don't even know what they're doing, it makes it hard to address. I would say almost impossible. So, anyway, that's what we're trying to do here. And by the way, welcome to In Layman's Terms, Matthew Garnett here. Check us out at all the usual places, um, especially go to laymanstermsradio.org and register, register uh, for the Pirate Christian Conference because I will be there speaking about this very topic and, and, and how it really just encompasses the landscape of, you know, of religiosity in America. I'm going to show you that. And I, and I think it's going to be really helpful for you. I've been thinking through a lot of this, and it just makes so much sense if you understand uh, the kind of the postmodern waters we swim in, you know, people think this kind of, this is kind of going away. People, oh, thank goodness, no more postmodernism. <laughs> yeah, oh nay nay, this is just this is just how sinful humans behave. And like I say, it goes all the way back to the snake in the garden, who questioned God's word, who qu- who questioned truth, and Derrida just happened to point it out, and that's pretty much what is going on whether that be with our antinomian friends or our um, atheist agnostic progressive friends here like Rob Bell so by way of review let's go back since we've been off a couple weeks here let's go back let's talk about what's going on here let me do the deconstruction walkthrough with you again. Basically, what deconstruction does is it takes two binaries. Think man versus woman. And it inverts them and puts woman above man or woman equal to man. And then it subverts the terms. In other words, it, it, it works towards making those terms meaningless. So no longer does... Does a man, does being a man have any definition? Nor does woman. Now, think about our, our, our culture. Look around, friends. Does being a man in our culture 
have a sure definition anymore? No, it does not. Does being a woman have a sure definition in our culture? No, it does not. And now we're kind of in the experimentation phase, which is the, really the third step to deconstruction. Let, let's see how this works out. And then after the experimentation phase, you say, okay, this is how it worked out. Now let's reinterpret how we're going to proceed as a culture. And then you rinse and repeat. You're always deconstructing. Okay. So that's really how deconstructionism works. And people do it all the time. And, you, and you've got to recognize that. And, and one easy way to recognize deconstruction is when people are re, when people start try to trying to redefine terms. Again, this is what my antinomian friends do. They redefine the law. So the law um, curbs, it mirrors, it guides. That's what the Lutheran confessions teach. So you're driving down the road 100 miles an hour, you see a cop, you slam on your brakes. Why? Not because you're a law-abiding citizen, but because you don't want to receive the punishment that that law is going to bring. And then you have the mirror piece, which is the chief function of the law. It shows you your sin and your need for a savior. That's the chief function of the law for us fallen human beings. And then the third use of the law is the guide. It instructs the Christian, the regenerate Christian, in how they are to live. Well, my antinomian friends take that third use of the law and they redefine it. And, we, and we've covered some of this in the past. And they say, no, no, the, the law doesn't instruct the Christian in how he should live. It, it instructs the old man to death, which I really don't even know what that means. But that's what they say the third use of the law really is according to our confessions. Notice they're redefining the terms there. They're deconstructing. And that's, that's really the first step to inverting the binaries and then subverting them and ultimately, and ultimately trying to dissolve any real meaning to the term law in the case of the antinomians. All right. And so this is what Rob Bell is doing in his book, What is the Bible?, and we're going to see that. We already saw in, in the, the previous episode that we started out with this that, that Bell is trying to remove the divine from the scriptures. He encourages you to read the Bible without bringing God into any of it. It's, it's, it's entirely a human endeavor. And we're going to see just what the implications of that is. And if you're going to go down this path of, deconstructionist, uh, of deconstructionism, it necessarily ends, it logically ends in you being an atheist. That's where it ends. There, there's no other logical place to go with it than that. See, that's what I found wonderful about the Lutheran faith is that the deeper I go into the Lutheran faith, the deeper I go into the Lutheran faith, the more God makes sense. And I can, I can keep going into it and I can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and the more stuff makes sense that yes, there is a God who loves his creation, his fallen creation, and has come up with a plan to redeem that creation and that is his son 
Jesus Christ, which the Holy Spirit teaches us about through the scriptures. It just it just makes more and more sense the deeper I go. The deeper you go into postmodern deconstructionism, the further away you go from understanding God. And it necessarily ends in atheism. And sadly, I think that's where Rob Bell's ended up. Because he doesn't need God to know what the Bible is about. In, in fact, God shouldn't enter into it. You should leave that to the very last. Don't, don't think, don't presume that God has his voice located in that place. And like we've pointed out before, if God's voice isn't located somewhere, then we've got a big problem. Because then, all of a sudden, we've got this vacuum of, okay, well, well, who gets to say what is truth and what isn't truth? And again, as we've said before, don't think that postmodern deconstructionists don't have truth. I mean, one thing, one thing I'm going to point out in, in my presentation at the PCR conference is that, um, is that uh, you know, postmodern progressives, both in the, in the religious realm and in the political realm, and the two are very fuzzy where, the, where that line's drawn, um, they have commandments. They have truths. And I've come up with ten commandments that they have. And uh, if, if you run into any progressive postmodern um, and you ask them about these certain commandments, they're going to agree to them. But you have to remember, to the postmodern deconstructionist, truth, the, truth is not even a thing. It doesn't exist. What, what the, the foundation from which they work is subversion. And it's based on their, again, their intuition, which is which is a, a combination of their intellect and their feelings, and therefore that's that's why they take it so personally when you attack their ideas because they're they are personal. Their the, their very ideas are are theirs. They're not God's. You can't say, hey, you know, look, I didn't say this. God said it. You have to say, no, no. I say this, and when you say I say this, then it becomes very personal, and so it leads to a couple couple of really bad places. I think one is that it necessarily devolves into uh, into atheism, and two, it devolves into violence, and I'm, I'm not sure that's what we're what we're after here. So at any rate, hopefully that'll catch you get you back up to speed, catch you back up here, and uh, and we can dive into. Bell's book once again uh, this week and perhaps maybe maybe another week I don't know there's there's some really good stuff I mean Bell Bell is really fun to listen to because especially when you understand where he's coming from how he's deconstructing um, it's just like oh wow that's that's a really fascinating and that's really interesting I mean it's dead wrong obviously but it is very very interesting how he approaches it and we are indebted to Jacques Derrida for uh, revealing this to us, for helping us, give, uh, for giving us this this um, this great explanatory value um, in his work to understand how people think when they don't know where to locate God's voice, and that's really what this boils down to.
it boils down to a situation where we can't locate God's voice. We can't locate truth. We don't have that foundation. So from what foundation do you proceed? All right. Anyway, let's jump into it and see how it goes. All right, chapter 24, The Human and the Divine. As you've picked up by now, the Bible was written by people. I realize I've said this countless times throughout this book, but I did this on purpose. I kept repeating this truth that the Bible was written by humans because when you start there and you go all the way into the humanity of this library of books, you just may find the divine. And when you do, you will have gotten there honestly. Okay, so already a bit of deconstruction going on here. Um, True. The Bible was written by humans, superintended by the Holy Spirit. St. Peter teaches us in his second epistle, chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the more prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I like to bring my kids into these things quite a bit. You guys remember the whole cell phone thing back when I was talking about uh, Willie Parker? how they turn my cell phone into a rat trap. If not, go back and review those podcasts. But if if my wife makes a pie, and my wife can make an, an amazing pie, and she makes a pie for, for a dinner party we're going to attend on one night, and she puts the pie up there, and then she and I have to go do whatever, and we leave Amelia in charge of Isaac at the house, um, and we put a note by the pie. Jen puts a note by the pie and says, Do not eat this, this pie. It's for later. And my children come along and they eliminate the do not and the it's for later. And all they see is, all they, all they see is eat this pie. Um, that's essentially what deconstruction is he's deconstructing yes the bible was written by men but as saint peter teaches us here 
that this was not a merely a work of man. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. And for him to assert from that presupposition that the Bible was only merely written by men and that to come to the divine, we must understand that and explore the depths of that, that the, that the Bible was written by men, nothing to do with God, then we might come into an encounter with the divine. Notice he says, may come into an encounter with the divine. Interesting that St. Peter completely contradicts him here. Contradicts him. So, so it's, it's a bit of deconstruction. Sounds clever. Sounds good, doesn't it? But he, but he's subverting the terms. He's inverting the terms. He's subver- and he's subverting them here. He's he's starting to remove the demo- the the divine from the equation until the very very end until you find something that does what well essentially jives with the progressive ten commandments that's when the divine comes in oh if it agrees with what we think equates to progress see so as we saw last time this, this is precisely what's happening. And, and when you do this, you, you necessarily must be an atheist, up, at least up to a certain point, until you explore this thing as a human endeavor and understand it to lead you to a certain place, whence then you can say, okay, oh, that's really good. That really resonates with me. That really resonates with my community etc but St. Peter clearly has no space for this I wonder what uh, <laughs> Rob Bell doesn't address this passage in his book I wonder what he, what, what he would do with that other than to say that well um, St. Peter really didn't have the proper perspective on it I don't know it's hard to say Hard to speculate on that piece, but you see the deconstruction going on here, hopefully. Let's continue on. For example, the resurrection. There are four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each tell about Jesus being betrayed by one of his friends, having a final meal with his friends, being crucified by the Romans, and then rising from the dead. If you read these gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, things get very interesting very fast. Mark reports, that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went to Jesus' tomb, while Matthew says it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who went to the tomb. What's it like to go down in history as the other Mary? Oh, you know, it was the other Mary. According to John's Gospel, it was just Mary Mags, but when she gets to the tomb, some dude asks her why she's crying and who she's looking for, and she thinks it's the gardener, so she wants to know if he's the one who took the body, where did he put it? because I will get him, she says with the force of a woman who is not mucking about. Then the possible gardener dude says her name, and she realizes that it's Jesus. He's alive? Luke tells us that this same dude walked with two of the disciples from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about seven and a half miles, talking the whole way, and they don't recognize him 
until they sit down for a meal and he breaks the bread and then they realize it's Jesus. He's alive? Interesting that the people who were closest to Jesus and spent years with him don't recognize him post-resurrection. Hmm. The next time you hear someone insisting that it was an actual, literal resurrection, make sure you add that bodily must mean that he didn't look like he looked before. Wow. Now that's a real critical piece that you're left wondering whether Bell still would affirm a bodily resurrection of Christ as St. Paul does in one of the most ancient passages in all of Holy Scripture. That would be 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is considered by most scholars to be creedal material that even though 1 Corinthians itself was written by Paul uh, somewhere around 50, 55 AD, that neighborhood, 1 Corinthians 15, that part where he talks about how I'm passing this on to you as first importance, that's creedal material that is that actually um, had to come from around 34, 35, maybe 36 AD. Um, and according to most of the calendars, that's only a couple of years after Christ died and rose from the dead. See, I think I think St. Paul would disagree with Rob Bell here. That an insistence on a bodily resurrection. And, and if you doubt this, go check out some of N.T. Wright's stuff. Now, I, I don't have a lot of time for, for a lot of what N.T. Wright does. I, I just don't have a lot of use for it. However, he wrote an astounding volume on resurrection. And he makes an excellent case that when Jewish people talked about resurrection, they were talking about bodily resurrection. So that term, resurrection, meant a bodily resurrection. And this was important. In fact, St. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then let's just call the whole thing off. And Bell seems to be calling that into question here. And he necessarily has to in order to continue to support his case. Because if Jesus bodily rose from the dead and we have his words, then we have God's words. And it blows up his whole case in this book. That God's words are not necessarily located in the scriptures. In order order to maintain that position, he's got to deny the bodily resurrection. Interesting, isn't it? Where Bell's deconstruction of Holy Scripture takes us. One gospel mentions there was an earthquake, while the others leave it out. John tells of two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been. Luke says it was two men in gleaming white. Mark says it was a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side of the tomb. And Matthew says it was an angel of the Lord that rolled back the stone and then sat on it like you do when you roll back a stone and open up a tomb. If you read the accounts back to back, there's a lot of running and excitement and general mayhem. 
Setting aside the issue of whether a man actually rose from the dead, the sheer poetry alone is so crazy good, the four accounts of Jesus rising from the dead contain a number of jumbled details that render the narrative fairly disjointed, to say the least. There are several responses to these differences. Some ignore them. They simply repeat again and again that this is God's word and so we take it in faith, we shouldn't question its truth, etc. Others take these differences as clear and tangible proof of its susceptibility. See, it's all myth, fable, miracle, fantasy, etc. borrowed from the tales of the day. I find both perspectives boring. Before I explain, though, a few thoughts about propaganda. To summarize, this is the worst propaganda ever. If you're trying to start a religion, this is a crap way to do it. How are you going to inspire confidence if you can't even report the details accurately with one voice? Not to mention the women, which we will mention, because the gospel writers all mention the women. In these accounts, the writers all affirm that it's the women who first realized, say it with me now, he's alive. In the first century, women didn't have much in the way of respect as we think of it, so their word meant next to nothing in court. Why, in a culture that had such little regard for the witness of women, would you tell a story that hinges to a large degree on the witness of women? Second, Matthew writes that Jesus met up with his crew on a mountain in Galilee, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What? they doubted? Why would Matthew include this? If the point of your book is that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the one everybody has been waiting for, why would you reach the crescendo of the story and then include a line about some of his followers doubting? Doesn't that ruin the moment? Doesn't that undermine everything you've been saying in your story? That said, a question for you. If something extraordinary did happen, how would it be remembered? Which leads to another question. If someone did rise from the dead, how would that story be told? In a calm and collected and polished manner, or in a slightly haphazard way that buzzed and hummed and rattled with the electricity that comes from experiencing something so unexpected and extraordinary that you don't really have categories for it? Which leads to another question. Is the haphazard humanity of it all reason to dismiss it or signs that it's an authentic record of what happened. Which leads to another question. When Matthew tells us that some of Jesus' followers doubted, does this undermine the story, or is this the exact kind of honesty that reflects how people actually are? When each of the gospel writers includes the part about the women being witnesses, why risk it? What a strange thing to include knowing it would discredit their story, unless women actually were the first witnesses okay now this would this would be great if you would come right out with a certain no questions asked affirmation of the bodily resurrection of Christ is he going to do that or is he just going to keep asking his questions here he's going to keep deconstructing how open-minded are you what's possible is there a new creation bursting forth within this one? Did something happen that changes everything? Is the tomb empty? What happens if you actually live like it's true? What does this story do to your heart? Okay, now that is critical. Because now he's, he's stepping into to really what is like 
I can only term as neo-asceticism. And understand, asceticism takes several forms. And it's the most modern form. Um, and this is this is something that was that was really attractive to me when I was at Claremont. Was the idea that if we just lived like what the Bible said was true, it's almost a it's it's a it's a neo orthodox concept that hey, if the Bible's true for you, then it's true. Idea. Um, if we lived like it was true, what difference would would that make? And and the th- and the thing of it is, um, there is a big difference between living like it's true. Like it really doesn't matter if we have evidence for it. Or like it, it doesn't matter if it really happened in time and space. The only thing that matters is is if we if if we believe it's true. This is a huge move on Bell's part, and you need to see what he's doing here. And that's where he's going to go with it. If we lived like Jesus actually did bodily rise from the dead, what difference would that make? Um, well, it would make—I would think it would make a difference. But I—but I wonder what it would be like if it actually did happen in time and space. Because if it didn't happen in time and space, if if the resurrection is a myth then St. Paul is very clear. We're fools. Our faith is in vain. We might as well pack up our bags and go home. See? This needs to be real. It has to be real. Otherwise, the whole project is shot. And this is something that Bell brings out throughout the book. When he talks about Jonah and the flood and these different fantastical, miraculous stories throughout the Bible. At the end of the day, he says, "Like you know what? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it really happened or not. That's that's neo asceticism. That's neo orthodoxy." They say it doesn't really matter whether it happened or not. What we want to get from this is is the life lessons, is the truth that's behind these human stories. And when we get that truth behind these human stories then we might actually come in touch with the divine. And that's a problem. That's a major problem because how does that differentiate Christianity from any other world religion? Which, at the end of the day, Bell really doesn't do. He doesn't go for that. I mean, if the story of Muhammad, whether it's true or not, is something true and beautiful for you, then it's true and beautiful, and you should live according to it. And what would it look like if the stories of Muhammad the prophet were true? See, it all boils down to not where we can we locate God's voice, not where we can locate God and what he has to say to us and let that dictate the terms. The terms are dictated by us and what we think is good and true and beautiful because I can just as easily take his uh, applications of what is good and true and beautiful and apply it to Mohammedism or Buddhism or any other world religion and say 
well, whether it's whether it actually happened in time and space or not is irrelevant. What's true about it is what it teaches us. Well, that doesn't quite cut it, does it? Because now we've got all these competing views of things. And what's interesting about Bell is is that um, I can assure you that if I approached him and said, um, okay, well, you know, the truth I see behind this is that, you know, homosexuality is immoral. He would disagree with that going to get into that again at my talk at the PCR conference, the Ten Commandments of the uh, of the progressives, the uh, you know, the religious progressives, the political progressives. Uh, but at any rate, the only thing that differ- differentiates Christianity from all of the world religions is we can anchor what we have in time and space. That is history. And he's completely just debunking that and saying no that's not what's important what's important here is the truths behind that and if we lived like it was true then what would the world look like and as I've pointed out that's problematic first for some the Bible is just a collection of old books books written by people and nothing more for others The Bible is a collection of books, but it's also more than just a collection of books. They're books, but they're more than just books. Why do the four resurrection accounts in the Gospels differ on basic details? Why aren't there any clear denunciations of polygamy or slavery? Why does Paul say in the New Testament that it's him speaking, not the Lord? When people charge in with great insistence that this is God's word, all the while neglecting the very real humanity of these books, they can inadvertently rob these writings of their sacred power, all because of starting in the wrong place. You start with the human. You ask those questions. You enter there. You direct your energies to understanding why these people wrote these books. Because whatever divine you find in it, You find the divine through and in the human, not around it. Okay, so again, St. Peter would disagree. And and St. Paul as well on a number of levels. Okay, I I think we've shown what's going on here. You know, Bell is really trying to to drive toward this point. And, And it makes sense. You know, like I said before, deconstructionism, uh, particularly when it applies to Christianity, invariably leads to a form of atheism or agnosticism. And I, and I think that's where Bell's at, if he's, if he's going to be honest. That um, perhaps, yes, there is a divine, but he's agnostic about it. And what he wants to explore is, you know, what in his opinion... And in the opinion of his community, is good and true and beautiful about the scriptures. And he points out a, a number of those things throughout. Um, and before we get out of here, um, you know, I may I may do one more week on this. I'm not sure, uh, but but I did want to just play uh, one chapter that I thought was was really good, where Bell talked about sin. <laughs> 
um, that I have no idea what he's doing with it. And to say that I wasn't struck by this uh, chapter and confused by it, I, you know, just not sure. I'm not just sure what, I just don't know what to do with it. Where he talks about sin in very specific and in no uncertain terms. And I'd just like to play that for you and show you that people who do deconstruct, I mean, this is one thing I can show you is that folks who do the whole deconstructionist postmodern project have values. They have truth. Now, they're not going to call it truth. They're going to call it something else. They're going to work from another foundation. Uh, but this chapter was particularly interesting. Uh, this, this is one that I'm not so sure his progressive friends would have been very happy with because he makes the case so strongly against a particular sin and um, now the sin he decries here is fairly popular among his progressive progressive friends uh, but it's popular with me as well uh, you know a, a privileged white individual um, so I think there's some of, some of that going on there. Um, let's just work through it a little bit and see what we come up with. Chapter 35. What about sin? Let me see if I can clear a few things up in less than a thousand words. First, if I were to ask you to define the word sin, how would you answer? My guess is you'd probably say something like sin is when you break God's laws or sin is disobeying God or sin is whatever you do that makes God angry. While those may sound accurate, they don't tell the whole story, which is why many don't know what to do with the word other than cringe when people use it with a straight face. Now, for a definition. The theologian Cornelius Plantinga Jr. in his book Engaging God's World puts it like this. Sin is culpable disturbance of shalom. Shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, wholeness, health, and blessing. Shalom is the harmony God intends for the world. Shalom is how God wants things to be. Shalom is peace with yourself, with your neighbor, with the earth, with God. Disturbance. Things aren't how they're supposed to be, are they? From environmental degradation to domestic violence to Wall Street corruption to the petty little ways we disrespect each other, this world isn't everything it could be culpable guilt responsibility ownership culpable is any way you have contributed to the disturbance of shalom we see all around us sin is anything we do to disrupt the peace and harmony god desires for the world here's the problem with how many understand the word when sin is understood primarily in terms of breaking or violating or disobeying there's no larger context to place it in there's whatever you did or didn't do and then there's God's anger or wrath or displeasure with you. But when you place it in the larger context of the good, the peace, the shalom that we all want for the world, then it starts to make way more sense. Of course I'm guilty of disturbing shalom. Is there any sane person who wouldn't own up to that? In the Bible, we are not primarily identified as sinners, but as saints. This is important. Your primary identity, your true self, is found in who you are in Christ, not in the ways you have disrupted shalom. In the Bible, 
people are taught first who they are because the more you know about who you are, the more you'll know what to do. This is why some sermons that talk a lot about Jesus can be so soul-sucking. They aren't an announcement about who you are in Christ. They're all about what you're not. They're boring and lifeless and produce all kinds of despair, even though they quote lots of Bible verses because they mistakenly teach you that your identity is found in your sin. It's not. It's found in Christ, who has taken care of your sins. In the Bible, there's only one kind of sin, the kind that God has forgiven in Christ. There's no other kind. And so we do what we can to make amends with whoever we've sinned against, trusting that the only kind of sin there is, is forgiven sin. In the Bible, sin is the middle word about you. The first word is that you're created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor, a child of the divine. That's who you are. The second word is the honest, unvarnished truth about how we all fall short. We all sin. We all disrupt the shalom God intends for all things. The third word is the continual insistence that the last word hasn't been spoken about you and your sin, that all sins have been forgiven in Christ, that we are loved and restored, redeemed, reconciled, and renewed. That's what the writers return to again and again and again. One more truth about this word sin. A question, what is rape? If I told you that rape is something that is not nice, how would you respond? Or if I told you that it's really helpful when people rape less, what would you say? Or if I told you that rape just isn't the best thing that a person can do, please tell me you're crawling out of your skin right now. Why? Because I didn't use words that are strong enough and adequate enough to describe just how evil and horrific rape is. Some words are strong for a reason. We need them to describe realities that demand that kind of strong language. Sin is one of those words. Let's keep it. All right. So, honestly, I didn't... I struggled with this chapter because it was almost like he was presenting law and gospel. Um... And talking about how, hey, there are things that are sins that we should call sin. Now, he brings up rape, which in progressive liberal, liberal circles um, can mean many things. But, you know, there's not a lot to disagree with here. And I, I was appreciative of the fact that that he's trending toward law and gospel. And, and this gives me some hope, quite honestly, that when an honest look, when an honest take is given by a certain individual, you end up with law and gospel. Even with Rob Bell, he comes to a place of law and gospel here. So at any rate, this was encouraging. Um, so I wanted to throw that in. Just to say that, you know, going through this whole book, I do not doubt that he is sincerely seeking. And that in the course of this book, he came across this notion that is distinctly Lutheran. Interesting chapter 
I thought. Played it in its entirety, and I think that's what's going on here. He is picking up on the distinction between law and gospel. Unfortunately, he doesn't take it uh, where it needs to go. Now, let's get back to the bad stuff, uh, because most of this book is bad. It is. It's deconstructionism. This was anomalous, uh, but worthy to bring out. Now, that's not to say that I'm not wondering, okay, if we break shalom, if God doesn't have an interest in that. So, for instance, if we break shalom, if we sin, um, doesn't God have some sort of compassion for our victims like if we're rapists and we sin and break shalom doesn't God care about that and side with the person whom we've sinned against that's the part Pell doesn't cover in this chapter albeit it was probably the best chapter in the book so at any rate, hopefully we're starting to see the problems here. Even though Rob Bell sounds so, so good. Hopefully you're starting to understand, based on Jacques Derrida, uh, Derrida's uh, notion of deconstruction. I mean, we've learned this from him. Um, that there's a major problem going on here just on a number of levels and the hope is that we can see it hopefully this is have, has been helpful to you because and this is the thing that grieves me is I'm wondering if Rob Bell still has his faith but that judgment is way above my pay grade can't really say that the thing of it is is all indications here are he is the move is to abandon the divine when you approach holy scripture that you can't find God's voice unless you um, take the scripture as something that's completely human you cannot stop, start with a presupposition that the Bible is God's voice. And if you start with that presupposition, it's going to ruin the whole thing. That's the point of Bell's book. And that's where his deconstruction takes us. At any rate, um, going to think about this some more. There may be a couple of chapters I want to try to get in here, but probably we're going to leave Bell right here hopefully this was helpful to you hopefully we'll see you at the at the pirate christian conference and um yeah just want to remind you of all of our sponsors um gene tally five iron frenzy cody f miller um obviously kenyan christian arts um you know there's there's a link right on our website now to donate directly to them make any size donation that would be helpful Eric and Polly Rap, everybody on the website um, you know uh, we've uh, we've been podcasting a while here 
It's been good. And uh, hopefully some of this stuff is starting to make sense to you um, as far as, you know, just where our culture is going and how to guard against it. Anyway, see you next week. And uh, hopefully see you at the Pirate Christian Conference. Take care. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It brings salvation to those who believe. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Tell me I'm a sinner and Christ died for me. I don't want to know about what you did last week on your summer vacation. What you saw, where you went, or how much it cost. Instead, won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation? How he lived and how he died for me on the cross. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Give me the good news of God's only son. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Give me
save the world. Just you wait till it's a 